This is the Create Love, Create Freedom podcast. My name is Allison Fisher, and on today's episode, we are going to be discussing um, different levels of co-regulation um, within our most intimate relationships as adults. Uh, we're also going to be diving a bit into our childhoods as we talk through these um, kind of uh, five different levels. And we're also going to be discussing um, trauma. We're also going to be discussing um, polyvagal theory and understanding our nervous system when it comes to these levels of co-regulation. So there are five levels. Um, the first is trauma bonding. The second is consistent rupture repair. The third is secure attachment. The fourth is mutual growth. And the fifth is deep intimacy. So trauma bonding is where an individual um, will kind of have this paradoxical sense of comfort and familiarity in highly dysfunctional and consistently dysregulating relationships. So the nervous system gets used to constant chaos and allows it to continue um, without the person really leaving the relationship, um, sometimes even enabling or participating in, um, you know, or instigating uh, it because of its predictability and familiar nature. We are, as people, very much creatures of habit. And a lot of times we allow something such as trauma bonding to happen within our intimate relationships, because that's also something that we experienced in childhood. And um, this, when it comes to the nervous system, this really gives kind of a high level of a freeze response. And also codependency is involved in keeping kind of both people stuck together and unable to really walk away or create um, any type of kind of healthy relationship. So this is also where, you know, there are certain kinds of people that can be more susceptible to it than others, right? Um, People with relational and emotional trauma are typically targeted by different kinds of perpetrators. Uh, The, the, the partner in the trauma bonding relationship, who is kind of the instigator, um, whether it's intentional or whether they're just operating from their wounds and their patterns and their trauma um, from childhood. And so it can be common for someone who's very abusive um, in this kind of trauma bonding way to seek out someone who's strong, driven, educated, independent, um, someone who really thinks through a lot of uh, a lot of things in their life, so that the the person who's perpetuating the trauma bonding can really often feel very superior when they eventually kind of break the person down. So other kind of risk factors when it comes to someone who uh, could be susceptible to being a trauma bonding relationship are people with dependent personalities. Um, anyone who puts a lot of value on the good times and is really quick to forgive. Um, there's someone who the, the other partner who's maybe uh, doing more of the trauma bonding, they will, they'll look for the person who's quick to forgive. Um, the person who's quick to, uh, work to repair the relationship. And again, in a few minutes, we'll get into the rupture repair. Um, but they will also tend to look for someone who has a history of being abused in childhood or past relationships. Now this could be physical abuse, sexual abuse. This could also be emotional or psychological abuse. Um, uh, beaten down a little bit in some ways, they can still be very strong and have a very strong independent kind of, uh, characteristics, but they can also be someone who, you know, still kind of feels a bit wounded in a lot of ways. Um, they, uh, the trauma bonder will also really look for people who actually have any of the three insecure attachment styles, disorganized, anxious, or avoidant. Um, they will also look for people who uh, tend to question themselves, um, 
they will, you know, also look for people, you know, um, who are very sensitive of rejection. Um, and so they're able to cause a lot of nervous system dysregulation within the relationship, right? So there are some different stages of trauma bonding. Um, and often the relationship kind of begins kind of seemingly, it begins from a place of, of being seemingly um, really excellent, really wonderful. Um, and then over time, it kind of shifts and changes and it turns more um, abusive and has a dynamic of codependency um, and, you know, has a, has this kind of reoccurring uh, trauma, which happens in it, in, in the relationship. So the first thing, um, one of the first stages of trauma bonding is a lot of love bombing. Um, this is sudden intense attempts to create a we in the relationship. Um, the partner may, um, you know, do a lot of high praise and excessive flattery right? They're telling you all the things that you've ever longed to hear, but they're doing it in a pretty intense kind of way. Um, and, and very suddenly, you know, like they'll sense the, the trauma bonder will sense something different. And so, you know, they'll, they'll often do this kind of, uh, love bombing and, you know, it, it's a form of manipulation, it's a form of mental, emotional, and psychological manipulation. Um, another kind of um, stage of trauma bonding is uh, trust and dependency. So in this stage, the trauma bonder may kind of purposely test the, the partner's trust and dependency on them. And it usually leads to the a partner feeling guilty for questioning their partner. Um, the, the, the trauma bonding partner will often, um, really kind of create a lot of doubts. And the truth is, is that doubts are expected in a healthy relationship and it takes time to get to know someone, you know, not only for what they say, but also for what they do. Um, but the trauma bonder will often uh, make the person feel bad about themselves, maybe a little shame or guilt over the fact that, you know, they, um, the other partner is questioning them a bit and they will also then sometimes revert back to the love bombing, right? Or they will have done some love bombing ahead of time to kind of ease this kind of trust and dependency, right? They want the other person to fully trust them. Um, I heard not that long ago, um, you know, the reason why, you know, a lot of times you struggle to see the things that you did in the relationship um, with someone who was abusive, or even, you know, if you're trying to move the relationship into something healthier, or you are wanting to get into another relationship that is more healthy, is because you trusted that person, you gave them your full trust. And so you as the person who um, potentially is more healthy, but potentially, um, you know, has some insecurities and some other uh, things that you need to work on, the, the codependency, the, the closeness, right? The, the intimacy within the relationship could not have happened. Um, the, the, the trauma could not have happened if this intimacy wasn't there. Um, another stage of trauma bonding is criticism. So the, the person who, again, they could unconsciously be doing this, um, but they, uh, you know, ha have kind of started this abusive pattern. It's most likely been there from some of their past relationships. And so once they've kind of got your trust, they may really start to pick apart some of your qualities identifying them as insignificant. They may tell you that there's a problem with some of your qualities. And oftentimes the criticism can feel very sudden, um, especially if they have been love bombing you recently, you know, excessive praise about how great you are. And then suddenly they'll pick apart something. And 
what I've also seen is that um, the criticism phase is most noticeable during intense arguments and disagreements. Um, the, the, you know, person who is doing the trauma bonding will often, um, blame the partner and then they may, you know, kind of, um, end up like over apologizing. Um, and then the person who is the partner will often over apologize for things that were not even their fault to begin with. Um, the next kind of stage or level is uh, manipulation and gaslighting. Um, these are two forms of, you know, psychological abuse, right? Um, uh, that can often be seen in trauma bonds. Um, and it really makes the partner question their reality and their perception. The trauma bonder who's doing the gaslighting will never really fully or honestly take responsibility for their behaviors. And they'll tend to shift the blame onto their partner. And, it's very common for uh, a gaslighter to suddenly be uh, seem very calm and cool and collected once they've really pushed their target to their breaking point. Um, and, uh, and then another level is kind of this, this almost like resignation, um, a kind of giving up. And so it's very common for the person who, for the partner who is being, uh, is kind of the, the person who the trauma bond is happening to, um, they'll often back away from things a little bit so that conflict doesn't happen to, to really avoid the conflict because they know that the conflict really triggers a lot of the criticism. It triggers a lot of the, um, manipulation, the gaslighting, right? And so, what will happen is that um, this will kind of be a fawn trauma response. Um, you know, this could be like bargaining and people pleasing behaviors that kind of come forward in the partner. And it, what it, what the partner is trying to do is uh, to really ensure that the relationship can can be somewhat stable, right? Most of us don't enter into relationships wanting instability. We are looking for safety. We're looking for security. We're looking for being in, you know, a really healthy, um, a really healthy, uh, you know, um, nervous system state, right? We're trying to stay in the the ventral vagal system, right? Where we can have deep intimacy, um, you know, where we can be engaged in our life. It's the green, right? It's where we feel calm and safe and um, secure. And we feel very free in the relationship at that point. But the trauma bonder will often take us into the um, sympathetic system and also the dor- dorsal vagal um, system. And where we're, um, you know, people pleasing, or we're um, freezing or withdrawing from situations, instead of um, being in that kind of stable place. So, the person, the partner who's having the trauma bond done to them um, is really trying to maintain that stability. Because again, they need that in their life. We can't be really healthy people. We can't be moving things forward. You know, um, we're, we're just creating more stress. We see it that way. Um, and so, um, what will happen is that the partner may have some awareness that they're kind of being manipulated. Um, but that small awareness may not be enough to really exit the relationship yet because their their partner who's kind of doing the trauma bonding um, may still um, be questioning whether or not they are um, you know be questioning them and then the the partner is really kind of questioning themselves um, about whether or not they're really to blame and um, the sixth stage of trauma bonding is really where there's a loss of self, right? Um, there's this kind of progressive loss of self as there, as you're in this kind of, uh, uh, reg, uh, kind of co-regulation within, within your own nervous system, right? As you're going through this kind of abusive kind of relationship. Um, but 
you constantly have this loss of self. It really brings a lot of pain, a lot of disconnection from the world, um, from your goals, from, you know, uh, your sense of identity, your sense of self. And so you have this loss of your own identity. You also have a loss of your own personal boundaries. And trauma bonds can be incredibly isolating. Um, you may lose many of your kind of social connections due to changes, uh, due to the changes of your own self-identity um, that really no longer match what people close to you are used to. And so this really gives you a loss of a sense of self-sovereignty. Um, this gives you a loss of a sense of grounding, um, you know, a, a sense of being rooted in who you are. Um, and it often uh, creates a lot of distance between you and other uh, more healthy people, right, than your, than your partner at the time. And then the last um, stage of the trauma bond cycle is kind of an addiction to this whole cycle. Um, the stages can be cyclical, um, but there's also, you know, a conflict that will usually happen. And then there's kind of a cool down period, um, a honeymoon phase, right? Where things get back to normal a little bit more and in the, the trauma bonded person is really, it almost looks like they've changed a little, like they've grown a little, like they've taken into account some of the things that you've said, that you've asked of them. You, the the issues that you've brought up, they're like, mm, okay, that's interesting. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna take a, a deeper look at that, right? Um, and and it's kind of this period of peace, which will kind of lull you into this. Um, kind of space where you think things have gotten better. Um, but then a lot of times, you know, the cycle starts again. And, you know, in that space of kind of peace or calm, um, where, you know, there's that honeymoon period where it's almost as if the partner is making changes it often makes them feel a very, uh, makes the non-trauma bonded partner or, or the one who's not uh, doing the trauma, it often makes them feel very relieved and desired. And so then it reinforces this dependency on this very abusive cycle. So as we talked about, this is one of the levels of this kind of co-regulation within ourselves, within our um, relationships. So the next is rupture and repair. So there's a, a couple of important things to know about rupture and repair. So all relationships are going to have a rupture period, right? We are two very different kinds of people. Um, even if we have, you know, maybe a similar personality type or a similar, um, you know, uh, you know, similar goals, similar, um, faith background, uh, similar upbringing, you know, those kinds of things, we're still very different people from our partner. And that's actually a very good thing, right? Uh, we need the different masculine and feminine, um, polarity, particularly sexual polarity, Right. We need the the intimacy, the closeness, but we also need the the desire, right? And desire is because you don't know someone well, or because something has happened and there has been conflict in the relationship. And one of the interesting things to me is that, you know, the you know every couple in a relationship is really set up for failure. So it's impossible to be emotionally available for your partner 100% of the time. Um, so Dr. John Gottman talks um, in one of his books about the fact that both partners in a relationship are emotionally available to the other partner only about 9% of the time. So that means 91% of our relationships have this kind of really great ability to have miscommunication. 
right? Um, then of course you throw in the fact that a lot of times, uh, things will come up where we will feel triggered and, um, we will maybe feel a little bit scared or, uh, feel silly, um, and, you know, not want to really share what's on our mind, what we're thinking. Um, and so, uh, you know, we create a lot of angst in our own relationships. And what I found was really interesting about rupture repair is that the rupture isn't the problem. The rupture is going to happen. Uh, in fact, uh, the Gottmans, uh, Dr. John and uh, Dr. Julie Gottman, uh, they both talk about the fact that you're not going to solve most of your problems in a relationship, in a partnership, in a marriage, right? Um, most of the time, you're both just going to have to say, hey, I now better understand where you're coming from. And I now am going to say, okay, I still disagree with you, but I understand your perspective better. Um, I understand you better. And so I'm going to take this into account, you know? Um, and so failure is really not the problem. And so, um, when we look at this kind of rupture repair, when it comes to a mother and a child or a father and a child, um, the, the studies show that even a mother who failed to respond and be available to her child 50% of the time can raise a child to be a healthy adult with a good, with a kind of healthy relationship, um, with the child and, the child will, you know, attach securely and have healthy uh, relationships as adults. So the difference between a good mother or a good father and a bad mother or a bad father, it, it's not the amount of errors that the parent makes, but what they do with them. So how a child copes with everyday failures and fluctuations is directly related to the degree in which their parent creates an environment for a secure attachment bond, unlike what we just talked about, which was a trauma bond, and how that parent repairs their errors. So it's really no different in our romantic relationships. The difference between really happy couples and really unhappy couples is not that happy couples don't make mistakes and that they don't fight. We all do. How couples repair what separates the relationship really changes the dynamic. So again, no matter how careful you are, uh, you will often uh, be the perpetrator of a rupture, um, a rupture bond in your relationship, even in a very excellent marriage. Um, you know, saying mean things to each other, um, being critical and defensive, even engage in some stonewalling, right? Um, have some ugly screaming matches. Um, these are the same things that, you know, healthy couples and unhealthy couples do a lot of the same things. But at some point, the healthy couples have a conversation where they recover from it. Um, so the couples that are really, really willing to admit responsibility for their part in the conflict so they can like begin the process of healing their bond with their partner. This is where the relationship changes and the relationship is different. And so, you know, there are of course a lot of ways to kind of determine what makes for an effective repair. But I think that the real critical thing is, you know, it, it's, it's being there. It's being able to kind of reach out um, you know, a, a rupture is a break in the connection between two people. It's often, you know, caused by the hurt and the anger. Um, but ruptures are a normal part of relationships. And so when the, the rupture is then repaired, you know, that, that, um, attempt to, to become close to the partner again, this kind of repair attempt, right? this kind of um, intimate attempt to be close, to be bonded, often makes the biggest difference between whether or not the relationship is very healthy um, and whether or not both partners can move back into a, um, a much more healthy um, nervous system state. And 
So when repeated ruptures occur without any repair, walls between people build up over time. Love gets replaced by resentment, causing a relationship to um, erode. So often moderate degrees of freeze response and codependency are involved when there is no repair that actually happens after a rupture. Now, granted, there are ways to learn skills to have better ruptures, right? Where you're not attacking the person's character. But on the other hand, it's also the repair attempt that is really important. And it often allows both partners to kind of come back down from a, um, you know, and, and uh, kind of come back down from, um, you know, more of that green or excuse me, more of that yellow or that red um, kind of space within their nervous system. And it allows them to co-regulate together, co-regulate their nervous systems. Uh, so next Um, when it comes to the different levels of co-regulation, we're going to talk about secure attachment. And we're going to talk a little bit about, um, you know, what secure, a, a secure attachment style looks like and some of the strengths of people with that secure attachment style. Um, but we're also going to talk about the fact that secure attachment is really the foundation needed to heal trauma, right? The most, most dysfunctional patterns begin to subside because consistency and reliability have been established within the relationship. The nervous system in both people is then really able to trust their partner, even if there is a rupture. Um, most people who are securely attached will say they didn't really do it on purpose. Maybe they were triggered, something came up from their childhood, because that certainly happens for people who are even securely attached. Oh, they're still going to have those moments. They're also still going to have the moments of being a little bit more avoidant or a little bit more anxious, right? At the same time, though, it's really taking a look at the dysfunctional pattern. And when we as individuals in the partnership work on becoming more securely attached, um, learning skills, right, to be able to repair after a rupture and to see if, you know, if there are any kind of trauma bonding um, things that we bring to our relationship, things that maybe, of course, we saw in our childhood or we saw between our parents. You know, it, it's really important to uh, look at those so that we can become more securely attached. Because this is when our nervous system is really able to trust our partner. So when it comes to um, strengths of those with secure attachment style, um, they these are people, and, and um, also if you're trying to work on becoming more securely attached, you will feel like you are more generally comfortable with intimacy in a relationship. Um, again, the, the secure partner will... Um, assume that their partner means well. And so they are quick to forgive um, in an argument or when their partner makes a mistake, which again helps their partner as well as themselves really regulate their nervous system. The secure partner may ask for space in the relationship, especially after, uh, you know, um, maybe there was a rupture and a repair, uh, but they may just in general ask for some space in the relationship, but the secure partner will let their partner know when they can expect to hear from them again. Hey, I'm going to go into the garage for a little bit, or I'm going to go work out for a little bit, or I got to go take care of this thing. But after I come back or at this time this evening or tomorrow morning or whatnot, I'd like to keep having a conversation about this. Um, you know, someone who's securely attached certainly may um, yell or raise their voice, um, but they generally tend to attack their partner's character a lot less. A lot of times, again, in childhood, they never saw that. They didn't see their parents attack the other one's character. They attacked the issue, the problem, the discrepancy, the disagreement, the thing that 
pulls them apart a little bit that causes a rupture. Um, most of the time, though, uh, someone who is securely attached, um, they will make bids for connection. They'll make bids to reconnect emotionally, even in the heat of the moment, even in uh, the, the times when they are having a, a rupture with their partner. So I find that really interesting too. I mean, think about what that does for our nervous system, right? When our partner is then, you know, making attempts to repair, to move back into that green state, that ventral vagal system state, right? Because probably during our, uh, you know, our, our rupture, our argument, um, you know, both people have kind of moved into the yellow, right? The sympathetic system. Um, and, and instead the partner, one or both, when they are securely attached, they will try to bring the other partner back, um, to kind of an emotional stability, right? Because of their bid to reconnect, because of their, their willingness uh, their attempts to um, repair the relationship. Um, one of the things that's also very true about partners who are securely attached is um, sex is usually emotionally intimate um, because they don't need to create distance in the relationship by treating sex and intimacy as two separate things. Uh, one of the things that um, I was having a conversation with a friend about not that long ago, um, we were talking about the fact that isn't it amazing how open, um, sexually aware um, a woman will become when she has gotten out of a an unhealthy relationship and she chooses a secure relationship. So again, there's this, there's this ability for sexual awakening, sexual connection on a much deeper level. And um, I, I find that to be, to be really fascinating. I, I did a little bit of research on BDSM, um, you know, dominant, submissive, um, you know, partly for my own personal exploration of what I like sexually, but also from the standpoint of People who, you know, when, when it comes to like attachment style. And what I found was people who are more securely attached are in partnerships with people who are more securely attached, which means that they are generally more in a much more uh, regulated and trusting nervous system state, which also means that not only do they gain more sexual pleasure from their um, you know, sexual uh, encounters and interactions and intimacy with their partner, but they also often feel much more safe and secure to express different types of kinks. Isn't that interesting, right? Makes complete sense to me. If I don't feel secure, am I going to let you gag me? Am I going to let you, you know, spank me? Am I going to allow some of these other things, which again, can lead to much more intense, um, you know, uh, sexual pleasure, if that's your thing, you know, uh, uh, doing things that are, I don't know if they're considered taboo still, um, but certainly, you know, more than just, you know, kind of vanilla, right? I mean, vanilla is good too, but, you know, um, other, when you introduce other aspects sexually, uh, w between you and your partner, um, the intensity, right. Of the orgasm, the connection between the two people can be much better. And that creates again, a, a, a foundation where you both want to repair the relationship when there is conflict. Um, so when it comes to securely attached people, um, they're also secure in their power to make changes in a relationship because they don't think compromise requires sacrificing all of themselves. So the actual repair 
they are then able to give what they need, give what they can. They don't overgive, but they're also not undergiving. And I find that to be um, really, you know, just kind of a, a, a beautiful thing, right? I can give what's needed. I don't need to overgive of myself where I feel less than, but I don't need to undergive by trying to keep some sort of power dynamic within the relationship. So those are just some thoughts um, as we kind of move into um, becoming more securely attached people. Now, the next level of co-regulation is mutual growth. And this is an area that I personally deeply desire within relationships, but I find it to be such a, such a beautiful space. So mutual growth is where the stable foundation of secure attachment allows for both, both partners to encourage each other to grow and follow their passions in life, to follow their purpose in life without feeling threatened by each other's progress and wins, each other's success. In this kind of state, the mutual growth state, um, individuals hold each other accountable to be their best selves, um, to bring their best to the relationship, to bring their best to the world, to fulfill the purpose that, you know, source or the universe or God has for them, right? Um, yet they also, you know, in that process of holding each other accountable um, to be their best selves, both partners have a lot of compassion for their partner's shortcomings. Um, and they also have a lot of compassion for their own shortcomings. Because again, rupture is going to happen. People are going to mess up. People are going to be a little bit selfish every once in a while. Um, but also having that kind of deep forgiveness. And I think that deep compassion for shortcomings is so important when it comes to mutual growth. Now, effective communication of needs, you know, what each partner's needs are, um, is, is very much established in this kind of space. And it's also allowed to kind of constantly shift um, as both people grow and evolve individually and together, right? It's not this, you know, uh, in marriage or, or when you start the relationship, this is what I expect from you. This is what you expect from me. Here are your needs. Here are my needs. And there's no fluctuation. There's no change, right? Because if we are growing as people, then we are, you know, we're really able to you know, change, you know, have our needs that are, these needs that are changing, that are growing, that evolve a bit. And I think that that's a really beautiful part of understanding um, ourselves on a deeper level, um, but also understanding our partners on a deeper level, which also means that we can stay in a very secure um, attachment space. We can be much more in that green, um, you know, the green when it comes to our nervous system, right? If we're with someone who's constantly holding our, maybe not holding our hand, but, you know, is constantly there, has our back as we're growing and we have theirs. Both are so important. It's not just important that someone has your back. You need to also be somebody who has your partner's back. And, um, you know, there's a lot of transparency in this kind of space. Um, I think that, um, you know, it really allows each partner to realize their highest aspirations and the relationship has a lot of fruit. It has a lot of growth. Um, it has a lot of, you know, uh, it, it shows up as two individuals taking responsibility for loving themselves pushing each other into their greatness, supporting each other to be the best versions of themselves, you know, to constantly work on their healing, to constantly, you know, reevaluate their life so they're not, so that neither partner is, is stagnant, right? 
and to really develop uh, each partner really developing their their full potential and embrace uh, you know, kind of a full sense of consciousness and awakenedness within the, um, within their lives. And again, this also enriches the relationship. It it enriches the marriage if they're married, and it, it causes um, much more closeness uh, within the relationship, and that really leads into deep intimacy. So building deep intimacy involves creating an environment where both people feel safe, um, being themselves and sharing their thoughts and their feelings. It also requires both people to be emotionally available, emotionally engaged, seeking connection, attempting repair when conflict has taken place, and of course, supporting each other's growth. Um, Really being that person who, you know, has each other's back. And, you know, this kind of intimacy, it doesn't just happen, right? You have to cultivate and create it. But this sort of deep intimacy is really a close connection. Um, you know, it, it brings a lot of emotional, mental, spiritual stability, right? So again, this is a space where both people are able to stay much more regulated within their nervous system. Um, I think warmth is a key in, um, is a key to intimacy in relationships. It helps really kind of create a, a psychologically safe environment. And it really invites you to lower your defensives, to be known by someone else. Yet, if you're in that kind of space of a mutual growth, then the relationship is not going to get boring with the other person because you're constantly challenging each other. You're constantly being adventurous. You're constantly growing, right? So you're lowering your defenses. Um, You know, the warmth looks like understanding, thoughtfulness, empathy, responsiveness, friendliness within the relationship. But at the same time, it, you know, it's, it's the vulnerability. It's, it's the exposing sensitive parts of yourself to the other person. Um, You know, you're, your hopes and ambitions for both of your futures, um, past um, maybe moments or experiences of shame, embarrassment, also dreams and fantasies that you really just don't discuss with anybody else. Um, but, you know, the intimacy and, and the vulnerability and the authenticity that comes from the relationship uh, where you're both in this kind of very regulated nervous system state, maybe not all of the time, certainly it's going to fluctuate a little bit, but generally that's where you're living. That's where you're staying. It, it really means that there's a lot of benefits. Um, you know, you're feeling accepted. You trust someone else. They trust you. You have an outlet for your difficult emotions. Um, you often feel intellectually very understood. Um, you're fulfilled emotionally. Um, you also have physical and sexual needs that are taken care of. And you're often much less lonely, right? Because you got someone who has your back. Kind of, you know, at all times and whatnot. And so, you know, this really, this kind of deep intimacy really builds that kind of closeness, that connection that I think all of us are looking for. Uh, Even those people who are kind of operating more from the trauma bonding. Um, I have found that sometimes the abusers know that they are, are doing the abuse and they're creating a trauma bond within the relationship. But a lot of times it's also very unconscious. That's what they've known. They, they're doing it partly because they want the deep intimacy, but they haven't gone through and made themselves, you know, or, or or created, um, you know, a a healthy love within themselves. They haven't gone through and healed their own wound, their old wounds and their trauma. And so instead it really comes about as kind of this, um, reoccurring pattern of abuse. So the more that we learn about rupture repair, the more that we 
work to become more securely attached, the more that we focus on mutual growth. And, and I would say too, you know, for creating mutual growth and deep intimacy and secure attachment is, you know, when I talked about the, the 9% of the time that someone is, you know, um, really very aware or kind of paying attention or they're able to connect with you because let's be honest, we all have jobs. We all have, you know, things that we are doing right uh, within our lives. But, you know, that 9% of the time when you are emotionally available, be completely emotionally available. One of the big things for me in intimate relationships and relationships with children, um, you know, I, I put the phone away. That 9% of the time needs to be the highest quality that it can be. Um, I personally don't have a TV in my house, but that's just because I really, really enjoy reading um, dirty, dark mafia romance or pretty much any uh, dark romance. Um, but I just prefer to read. I also read a lot of other stuff, obviously, um, a lot of psychology, a lot of um, foreign policy, foreign affairs, uh, kind of stuff, but you know, the TV is a is a real big. Um, it, it limits your ability to be emotionally available, be fully present for another person. Um, you know, one of the um, the guys that I follow a lot, his name is uh, David Data, and David. Um, wrote The Way of the Superior Man. Uh, he also wrote a book called um, Dear Lover. And um, it's a woman's guide to men, sex, and love's deepest bliss. And he talked a lot about the fact that uh, in his book, uh, Finding God Through Sex, um, he wrote and he was speaking to the man um, or to the masculine. Nothing turns your woman on more than your real presence. And I, I, I can't tell you as a woman how important that is. I don't need all of your time. I don't want all of your time. I only have so much bandwidth to be emotionally available, right? Um, but I also very much do not want to be emotionally neglectful. But when we're together, I really want you to actually want to be with me right? You want to set the phone down to turn off the TV to be focused on us, whether we're doing something fun, whether we are, you know, just spending time together, whatever. Um, those few moments, that 9% of the time when it's really deeply focused, uh, when when a man is, is fully present with me, um, that's a man whose consciousness is deep and clear um, partly because he's living his true purpose and his passion and his heart is really unencumbered by fear and ambiguity. And in those moments when I want his full consciousness, his groundedness, he wants my surrender, you know, which is offered through my body and my heart. And, you know, he's really looking for my love offered as an open invitation with my full energy through my entire body, through my, you know, my, my interaction with him at that moment. And I have found that those are a lot of the deepest connections. Those are the spaces where we get that deep intimacy, where we get that kind of um, closeness, where we get that, that connection. I think that even if someone um, comes from a very trauma, um, uh, a very strong trauma background, or they, you know, have an insecure attachment style. I think that that's something that we are all looking for, that we all want, very deeply want. And so for me, that is, um, that's one of the things uh, from the, the feminine perspective um, that really helps as a couple, as a, as a partner, it really helps me get there. Um, really helps me build on that deep intimacy when each person is fully present, even if it's 9% of the time. 
So I hope that this was helpful for you today, um, talking about these different levels of co-regulation. You can also kind of look at um, some of the, the spaces that you and your partner are in. And, you know, I think that you can be in multiple levels kind of at one time. Um, certainly, um, you know, working towards secure attachment, um, working towards that deep intimacy, uh, working on your rupture repair, um, but also stepping away from the trauma bonding and also stepping away from only the rupture and not being willing to repair. Um, and then of course, you know, how that really fits into, um, you know, uh, where we, where we are in our nervous system. Um, I know for me, one of the ways that I really healed um, my insecure attachment, I was anxiously attached as a child and much into my uh, 20s and early 30s um, was really looking at my nervous system. When I kind of found that piece, I was like, oh my goodness, this makes total sense. Um, And I'm then able to move myself back into kind of that green space, that, that calm, uh, space, that, that place where I'm not in a fight or a flight or a fawn, or, um, I'm not, I'm, I'm not shutting down. I'm not withdrawing. Right. And so, you know, I hope it's helpful for you to kind of, um, bring all these pieces together and see that. Um, so, Next month, I will be releasing a new quiz, and it is a quiz uh, for women, and it will be about uh, really understanding what masculine wounds you need to heal. So please check out um, our Instagram page, which is at Create Love Freedom, and I will be releasing that in January. So I'm very excited about that. You can kind of take a look at the different... um, you know, kind of, kind of where your masculine wounds are. And, uh, we will also be releasing a course on masculine wounds, um, in the upcoming few months. So, um, I hope that this was helpful for you and until next time.